Here are now the very words of God as they are given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the second chapter, just the 25th verse. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this this wonderful Old Testament saint and we see this profile that you have given us, this portrait of, of what an Old Testament saint looks like. Lord, we pray that we will apply it to ourselves, that you'll speak to each one of our hearts and impress upon us that in times that are evil, you desperately need the kinds of saints that we're going to read about here in Simeon. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Around the time that Jesus was born, the time that we're talking about now, as we make our way through this narrative, the times were exceedingly evil. I'm not going to say that they're the most evil times that ever were because humanity has seen some very evil times. But especially in Israel during this time, the the days were dark and evil. For instance, look at the king, not even a Jew, King Herod, with an insatiable lust for power and opulent living. He virtually bankrupted the country and and imposed tremendous taxes on the people so that he could build all of the things that he wanted to build. He was paranoid with that desire to destroy anyone who even contended for his throne, and that meant killing his wives, killing his sons, killing his mother-in-law, killing um, uh, uh, dozens of noblemen throughout his life. He was a, he was a moral ingrate. And in fact, if you want to see the immorality of Herod, the great example comes from Matthew where he ordered the execution of an entire village of innocent youngsters, two years old and under, just to rid himself of what he thought might be a contender for his throne. It's, that kind of evil was what was in, in, in the governance of Israel at that time. But the evil of Herod, it was was paled next to the evil of the religious environment that Jesus was born into. I mean, the worship of Yahweh had become completely corrupt and apostate. On the one hand, you had the Sadducees who had liberalized and turned it into a business, if you will. They had turned the temple into their own personal little shrine. And they had, of course, said that there's no such thing as a resurrection. There are no angels. They had de-supernaturalized the, the worship of Yahweh. Heaven and hell were here on earth. And so, therefore, get as much as you could while you can get it. The other side of the spectrum were the Pharisees and their ill-directed desire to reform Judaism. And in doing so, all they did was create a new religion, a one based entirely on laws. It was legalistic, it was dogmatic, and it had nothing to do with the worship of Yahweh from the Old Testament. 
Then, of course, on the fringe, you had the zealots who decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands. And they were literally terrorists of the day, taking out Roman by Roman, whatever they could possibly bring it about. Then, of course, around Israel was Rome was the environment that they lived in. Rome, this monolithic, oppressive, worldwide, in those days, power that held the world in its grasp, exceedingly immoral, totally and completely, whether it was sexual immorality or whether it was just almost bestiality in the way that they handled their people. Once again, imposing intense taxes on them, worshiping gods made out of stone or wood or even flesh as they elevated emperor worship. Their lack of morality showed not only in sexual promiscuity, the, adve- the, the proliferation of homosexuality, but also just look at the way they treated Christians during the first century, where they would lead them into, use them as candles for their garden parties by lighting them and burning them or turning them loose in the Colosseum so that wild animals could tear them apart for their enjoyment. Brothers and sisters, this is a wicked place that Jesus was born into. And yet there were a few, and that's what our story is about. There were a few who were faithful, even in that darkness, even in that evil, wicked society, God had preserved and raised up men and women to accomplish his purpose. He does that when times seem the most desperate. And brothers and sisters, as we look at one of these men whose name is Simeon, I want you to remember that the times we live in are just as wicked. And I'll make that point later on. That If God needed men like Simeon back then, he needs men and women like him today in the world in which we live. That's my whole purpose, is to bring this home to you. To convince you that you are a saint of Jesus Christ if you believe in him. And just like Simeon, the world needs saints. Well, Luke is taking us through the nativity narrative of Jesus. And and, and we've seen something last week. We're going to see it this week. We're going to see it in the weeks to, to come. That rather than taking us in sort of this crescendo, he started it at the end of chapter one with Zechariah's prophecy about Jesus and then the incarnation and then heaven opens up, the angels come and they herald the coming of the Christ. God's Shekinah glory shines around and they, and the shepherds pick it up and they go and they find Jesus and they begin to share with anyone that they can find that the king has arrived and that the kingdom has come. One would expect, as I mentioned last week, that we would just simply flow right into the baptism of Jesus and into his ministry. But Luke didn't do that. Luke has put the brakes on. And and we saw it last week when we saw Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Jerusalem and, and fulfill the law for all righteousness' sake, to have him circumcised, to to observe her purification, to observe, observe his dedication. 
Well, in doing that, what Luke is doing, at least in the way I see it, is he is bringing the Old Testament into the New. He is forming a continuity, a flow between Testaments. Remember, Luke is a Gentile, but he is enthralled with the history of the Hebrews and the covenants that God made with them and the redemptive history leading up to the consummation of all that history in Jesus Christ. Well, now we're going to continue Continue this Old Testament uh, sort of theme by looking at a couple of Old Testament uh, saints. We're going to see Simeon today, a couple of weeks. We're going to see Anna. We've already met Joseph and Mary, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and, and he's showing us some, quirk, some, some qualities, some characteristics of these saints that I think, brothers and sisters, will be very helpful for us. Now, before I get started, I think that probably what I should do is to define to you exactly what I mean by a saint and also what I mean by, mean by an Old Testament saint. Those of you who are coming out of Roman Catholicism cringe whenever you hear the word saint because you have a different view in mind. Some venerated individual that has almost been deified and, and placed above other people because they had more merit than they needed to get into heaven. So, of course, their merit rolls off and goes into the treasury of merit, which the Pope can conveniently dole out to whoever he wants to. That's not the kind of saint we're talking about. We're talking about the biblical definition of a saint. The word saint is used quite often throughout the Old and the New Testament to describe the people of God. It is a word that comes from the same word group, word family as holy. It means to be set apart for God's purpose for his consecration. It speaks of true believers, loyal followers, those who have been consecrated by God for his purpose. In the New Testament context, a saint is a true believer in Jesus Christ, a true disciple, what we call radical disciples, the ones that are really sold out for the Lord Jesus. But in the Old Testament, there's so many similarities, but a, a few nuances of difference. And we're really focusing in on, new t- on Old Testament saints um, this morning. An Old Testament saint is someone who is a true believer in God, in Yahweh. Someone who is living out his or her faith. Someone who truly, truly loves and believes in the Lord. Someone who adheres to the laws of God. And in the case of this community... Someone who is faithfully watching for the coming of the Messiah. And that's Simeon all over. And that's why we're going to take a look at this Old Testament saint. And we're going to notice what Luke tells us about his character. In fact, if you'll notice, and let me go ahead and read the verse again because the whole morning is on this one verse. You'll notice that it's kind of a little mini biography in the way Luke presents it. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, Spurgeon makes the point that it's it's a short biography, but he asks the question, what more do do you need to know about a man than this? I mean, you read a biography, he says, and there's all kinds of worthless details about somebody. But here you have everything you need to know about a man like Simeon. He was extraordinary. He was righteous. He was devout. 
He was faithfully waiting for the consolation of Israel, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, once you'd established that about a human being, well, you've got yourself a saint. And so that's the reason we're going to take a look at each one of those. Starting out with just this first sentence. Let's dive into it and notice. The ESV says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now we're going to talk about his name in just a moment. But I don't, I don't know. I can't answer this question. I don't know why the ESV, the New American Standard, and the NIV, all three, either introduce this phrase with now or and, and ignore the Greek word that is there underneath. They, they just, it's like they skip over it. And in this sense, the King James gets it right. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon. The word behold, it's, it's a pointer. It's as, as if you take whatever you're talking about and you say behold and you say, hey, look at what I'm pointing to and let's put an exclamation point behind it because this is worth pausing. This is worth looking at. This is worth your attention. And this is the way that Luke introduces Simeon to us. I like the way that Spurgeon handled this. Um, if you can get past the old English, this is what Spurgeon says. Behold, there was a man. I'm sorry. He doth not say, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was King Herod. He doth not say, behold, there was a man in Jerusalem who was high priest. But behold, turn aside here for the sight is so rare. You may never see such a thing again so long as you live. Here is a perfect marvel. Behold, there was one man in Jerusalem who was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him. Now, Spurgeon sometimes was a little bit overdramatic, but I think that you get the point. What he's saying is that this is extraordinary. This is no ordinary individual. This is no ordinary saint. This was a saint that in the midst of the darkest of times and evil was all around him, was faithful to God. So let's take a look at him and let's see what we can learn about ourselves and what we should be in our relationship with Christ by looking at this Old Testament saint. Now, I'm kind of keying on that Old Testament. Um, the name Simeon is, an, is a Hebrew name. Okay, so it's very Old Testament. In fact, it's a, quite a common name in the Old Testament. Just so happens that one of the sons of Jacob was named Simeon. That means that he's one of the heads of the tribes of Israel. So there's an entire tribe called the Simeonites. But what you may not know is that in the New Testament, it just continues on as a very common name. It's just that it gets kind of changed to the Greek, Hellenized, and it's not Simeon anymore. It's Simon. And so Simon Peter's real name was Simeon in the Hebrew. Now, I think it's interesting. I'm not going to make too much of this, but I see it as transitional in one sense and almost eschatological in another sense. <laughs> when we get to heaven, folks, when we look at the new Jerusalem, not only are we going to see the name Simeon over one of the gates because the gates were named after the 12 tribes of Israel, but we're also going to see the name Simeon, or perhaps its Greek equivalent, silent, Simon, over one of the pillars. Because those are going to be named after the twelve apostles. So we're going to see this name transcend from old to new and all the way to the end of time. 
Now, here's my, here's my point, is that when Luke uses the Hebrew, the Old Testament version of this, he's pointing us to the fact that Simeon is on the end of the Old Testament. It's kind of like John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. Well, Simeon is one of the last Old Testament saints. So when we look at him as an extraordinary saint, it's going to be in an Old Testament context. When we look at him as a righteous man, it's going to be Old Testament righteousness that we're going to consider. When we see him as a devout man, it's going to be Old Testament devoutness. When we see his faithfulness, it will be Old Testament. And when we see him filled with the Spirit or guided by the Spirit, or abiding with the Spirit is going to be in an Old Testament context. He's an Old Testament saint. And it's going to really help us, I think, before the morning is over. So the first thing that we read about Simeon, this extraordinary Old Testament saint, was that he was righteous. This man was righteous. Now, the first thing that we have to do is kind of define what we mean by righteous because that word is used a little differently in the New Testament and the Old Testament. First of all, I want you to notice that Luke has pretty much identified each member of this messianic community as righteous. Remember, he's introducing these Old Testament saints, six of them in these first two chapters, and each one of them in some way or another is being identified as a righteous person. For instance, back in the first chapter, the sixth verse, talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, he said, and they were both righteous before God. Later on, when the angel speaks to Mary and, and, and talks to her and tells her that she's going to have a child, she, he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, to be favored of the Lord, to have the Lord with you is virtually the definition of what it means to be righteous. Righteous is a right standing with God's. In Matthew, we read that Joseph also was righteous, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Simeon is called righteous here, and we're going to see Anna is faithful in going to the temple every day, a righteous act. So in other words, Simeon shares this idea of righteousness with all of the Messianic community. But that doesn't really answer the question. What, what does he mean when he said righteous? Now, here's the problem that we have. We are students of the New Testament. So when we think of righteousness, when we think of someone being righteous, we think of it in the context of justification. We think about the righteousness that Christ imputes to us, perfect righteousness that he accomplished through a perfect life, the forgiveness of sins, the atonement on the cross, and the kind of righteousness that is required for any of us to stand before a holy God. We must be absolutely righteous. It's not our righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. Well, that's not exactly the way that the word righteous is used in an Old Testament context. Now, I'm going to make a point later on just to confuse you that it is pretty much the same, but on the surface, it's not. 
There's a different idea of righteousness. In other words, the, 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 the people who are deemed righteous in the Old Testament are often, it, it's a character trait. The, the, the Old Testament writer is telling you what kind of a person this is. For instance, we read in Genesis 6 about Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. The same is said of Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That, brothers and sisters, pretty much is the definition of Old Testament righteousness. And that, of course, is what God demanded of Abraham when he said, walk before me and be blameless. So the Old Testament idea of righteousness had more to do with behavior, a right standing before God, a kind of righteousness that pleased God, a lifestyle that pleased God. Now, if you're paying attention, you ought to grab something there. A little red flag ought to go up in your mind because you should say, wait a minute. You're telling me that Righteousness in the Old Testament is a sign of good behavior. Doesn't the Old Testament say there is no righteous, there's no unrighteous, no, not one? Doesn't the Old Testament also say that all of our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before God? Now, if that, if behavior can make someone righteous, then why aren't the Pharisees righteous? Okay, do you, you remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees, among other things? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. I mean, he says these negative things about the Pharisees, but then back in the Sermon on the Mount, remember what he said? Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, literally saying they're about as squeaky clean as you can get. So if behavior determines righteousness then why weren't the Pharisees considered to be righteous? Well, I think you already know the answer to that. Jesus tells us in that 23rd chapter of Matthew, without question, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside if the inside is filled with evil and dark things. What matters is what is on the inside. What matters is what is in your heart. What matters is your love for God, your the, the righteousness of a heart that is truly a follower of God and not just what you do on the exterior Because otherwise, the Old Testament saints wouldn't need a Savior. And the whole soteriology of the Bible, not just the New Testament, would completely fall apart. So, in other words, there's a the essence of righteousness is not what you do on the outside. So, what is the essence of righteousness? Well, you should know that too, because we've studied it. Where does righteousness come from? Does it come from good deeds? Does it come from a piety? Well, no. If that was true, then the Pharisees would be righteous. Where does righteousness truly come from, whether you're talking Old Testament or New Testament? Faith, brothers and sisters. Faith is the foundation of righteousness. Remember back Genesis 15, 6? And Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. 
So the very foundation of righteousness is belief, whether you're a New Testament or Old Testament. So that means Abraham was righteous because he believed God. It means Noah was righteous because he believed God and built an ark out in the desert when everybody thought he was crazy. It, it's, it's, a, it's a belief in who God is. And to believe him enough, even in an Old Testament environment, to believe him enough to know that the way to please him is to keep his commandments, to follow his rules, to lay out the kind of behavior that God likes. But it doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. That is the very foundation, the very meaning of what it means to be righteous. So let's go back to Simeon. Why was Simeon righteous? What was the, the, the key element in Simeon's righteousness? Faith. Simeon believed God. He believed the promises. He believed the covenants. He believed the prophecies about the Messiah. So he was faithfully waiting for that Messiah to come. And his faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's why Simeon's a righteous man. That's the only reason that anyone is a righteous person. Now, brothers and sisters, that flows right into the New Testament. There's only one way that any of us are righteous because there's only one source of righteousness when it all comes down to it. Not your righteousness. Your righteousness is, as the Bible says, filthy rags. There's no way that you're going to be righteous enough to please God. But your righteousness comes from a belief in Jesus Christ, a cleansed heart, a transfigured heart, regenerated so that in the heart, the rest of you begins to have a desire to be righteous. And so therefore, the same principle applies. Our first principle of the morning is simply this. Righteousness, whether for salvation or for sanctification... Whether it is the justification kind of righteous that allows you to stand before God, the robe of Jesus' perfect righteousness, or whether it is the righteousness of sanctification as you become more like Jesus every day is not something that is based on behavior or found in it. It comes from faith and faith alone. So therefore, Simeon, even though he's an Old Testament saint, and even though the word righteous has a slightly different meaning back there, his righteousness came from the same place our righteousness came from. He is atoned for and forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, and it was his belief and faith in God and the promises that God had given him that made him a righteous man. There's one thing the world needs, brothers and sisters, men and women who believe Because of that belief, they are righteous before God. Well, the second thing that Luke tells us about Simeon, not just that he was righteous, but that he was devout. Now, we need to define that word too. You're going to notice that I'm going to kind of, you you might expect me to say the word devotion, but I'm not. I'm going to continue to say devoutness. That there's a devoutness that Simeon had. The word devout actually is a rare word in the New Testament. The only writer to use it is Luke. And he uses it both in his gospel and in the book of Acts. But it is also is used in the Old Testament in the Greek version of the Old Testament. But only by Luke in the New. 
Now, if you go back to classic Greek, which is sometimes what you have to do to begin to understand what a word means, well, the word that is used here as devout means cautious. It means to be circumspect. It means to be careful about things that might harm you or things around you, to be conscious of the environment in which you live and to be careful about those things. Now, when the word is used in the Old Testament, it takes on the meaning of fear, to be fearful of those things. And so when Luke uses it here and he says that Simeon was a devout man, what he is saying is that Simeon feared God. He had a holy fear. He had a reverence of God. He honored him. He recognized the God, the God he served was holy and transcendent and majestic and the creator of all things. And the greater that God was and the holier that God was and the more that God was wrathful at our sinfulness, then the greater the mercy he was expecting when that God would send his son so that he could be saved. That's why he was looking for the Messiah. So that devoutness, brothers and sisters, is something that comes from inside. It comes from a heart. It comes from a love, a deep love for for, for the Lord. It, it comes from a deep love for um, what uh, God is going to do. Now, James tells us about that same devoutness in a New Testament context. Because what he says is that if, if you have what, what Simeon has, if you have a heart that knows and loves the Lord, if you have a fear of God, and remember we've talked about this, a holy fear, a fear of the holiness of God, the one who can send body and soul to hell. That is a healthy, holy fear of who God is. And if you have that healthy, holy fear, it is going to dictate the way you live. You're not going to live in a flippant, arrogant, prideful manner. You're going to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. So therefore, we see that one of the foundational aspects of righteousness is devoutness. Because that devoutness generates not a uh, a maybe kind of behavior. But again, James says, if you indeed have the faith of the one true God and you are devout before him, that faith is going to take manifestations in your life. Can't possibly keep it hidden. It is going to show in the world that is around you. So not only is that the foundation of Simeon's devoutness, it's also the foundation of ours. That's what Jesus said. I mean, he made it very clear in his upper room discourse. He said, if you love me several times, you're going to do what? You're going to keep my commandments. If you are devout, if you honor me, if you respect me, if you revere me, if you have any fear of the divine, then you will, through love, keep my commandments, this idea that you can be a Christian and have good care less about the commandments of God is simply foreign to the New Testament. And now we see it was foreign to the old. So Simeon was a man who was both righteous and devout. And he was a man who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's a word that means comfort. It means encouragement. It means exhortation. 
Uh, it's an appeal. It, it, it's a cry for comfort. It's as Isaiah says in his 40th chapter, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And trust me, brothers and sisters, the people of Israel needed comfort. They, they, they needed, they looked for, they longed for the comfort, the consolation of Israel. Because for at least 600 years, actually more, they had been under the domination of a foreign power. Uh, the Assyrian Empire in the north before that. But starting in 605 is when Babylon first took over and started deporting Jews and taking them back to Babylon. 600 years, you may remember Daniel's famous vision where he saw the, the history or the future for him, the history for us of what would happen to his people. First, they would be dominated by Babylon. Then they would be dominated by the Medo-Persian Empire. Then they would be dominated by the Greek Empire. And then up until the point we are now in the story, they would be dominated by the Roman Empire. And in between, during the time of the Greek Empire, when it was split into four different kingdoms, Palestine and Israel found itself right in between two of them, between Egypt to the south and Syria to the north. And these two groups are constantly fighting each other. And guess where the battleground was? Right there in Israel. Oh man, talk about a people who needed consolation. Talk about a people who needed comfort. Every one of them was crying out for the consolation of Israel, which pretty much became synonymous with Messiah, the messianic hope. In fact, Dr. Sproul points out that consolation of Israel became a title of Christ. Because after all, he was the consolation of Israel. So Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. But what, what, what's important about him, I think, is the way he was waiting and, and, and the type of waiting that it was. Everyone in Israel was looking for the consolation of Consolation, the consolation of Israel at that time. But everyone was looking for it in the wrong way and in the wrong places. They expected a military, political, social Messiah. Now, the Sadducees over there, we've talked about them, the rulers, the high priests, the chief priests. Well, they had pretty much decided that collusion was the best thing. They allowed Hellenism to come in. The Herodians were of that nature. Well, the Pharisees on the other side, even though they did not uh, 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 collude with the Romans, they are still looking for a military and political Messiah who will elevate them to worldwide dominance and make the Pharisee version of Judaism the religion of the world. Of course, the zealots are out there trying to do it on their own. They're trying to take down Rome, one Roman at a time. Almost no one was faithfully waiting, key word, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon was. Simeon was waiting for God's timing. Not his, not getting out in front of God. Dr. Sproul says, you know, he, he says that he's just guessing and he admits that. But he says he thinks that here's the scenario. Every single day, this old man, this elderly gentleman, we'll talk next week about why I think he's elderly. But every single week, this elderly man would go to the temple and he would fervently pray in the presence of others for the consolation of Israel. And everybody would deride him and make fun of him. That crazy old man, all he's doing is Praying to God. Doesn't he realize that God helps those who help themselves? 
That we need to get out ahead of God. We need to get out in front of Him and guide Him and lead Him. He's not going to do anything unless we instigate it. And there's old Simeon saying, no, I'm going to wait for the consolation of Israel. I'm going to wait for God faithfully to accomplish His will and His purpose. And brothers and sisters, if that's the only lesson you learned this morning about what it means to be a saint, to wait For the Lord's timing to wait for him, to let him lead and we follow. I mean, that's the lesson. If if that's all you take home with you, you've, you've done well. Not that I want that to be the only thing you take home with you. But the last thing that we learn, he's extraordinary, he's righteous, he's devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, faithful. Was that the Holy Spirit was with him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, the way that the Holy Spirit is seen in the Old Testament is somewhat different than what it is seen in the New Testament, but not entirely. And and I have an interesting conversation about this, but I'm going to wait, kind of push it off to the after church. Um, The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament as far as the work of the Holy Spirit within the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. It really is a a fascinating study. If you're interested, I hope that you'll stay after um, we're done here for the after church. But let me bring out a couple of things that we need to see. First of all, our New Testament only bent which all of us have to a degree, some more than others, but tends to think that, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit didn't do anything before Pentecost, right? I mean, the Holy Spirit's just sort of sitting around twiddling his thumbs after creation, which of course we know he was involved there. Well, what was the Holy Spirit doing during all those years of the Old Testament? Well, that's not true. There's two things I want to point out about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. First of all, if it was not for the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no Old Testament saints, Let me repeat that. If it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit, there would be no Old Testament saints. There would be no Noah. There would be no Abraham. There would be no Moses. There would be no David. There would be no Isaiah, no Jeremiah, no Ezekiel. None of them would have ever existed because the Holy Spirit must change the heart. In order for him to indwell that heart. Whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. That old heart of stone has to be removed. And a new heart in it. Now when Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. That means you don't have. He's not saying you're the first man in the world. That has to be born again. Everyone post Adam and Eve. Must be born again. So the Holy Spirit is working in the hearts. Of saints all through this time. So Simeon's heart was regenerated. It was transfigured. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, not in the New Testament context of Pentecost. That Holy Spirit comes upon the church and empowers us and enables us in a way that was unique and extraordinary. But that does not mean he's not working in the Old Testament the way he works in the New. So therefore, we need to realize that, that the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is just as important in Old Testament saints as it is in New Testament saints. There's one other thing I want to point out about Simeon and the Old Testament. If I took you through what I'm going to do in after church, you would notice that for the most part, the work of the, the, work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is going to be for kings and princes and judges and priests and prophets. Simeon is none of those. Simeon is just a layperson. 
we call a lay person. Simeon is just an everyday person like you. I mean, God raised up a man and gave him righteousness, devoutness, faithfulness. And he's just an everyday man. And you can go back into the Old Testament. We will to a little while. And you can see that even in the Old Testament, everyday people are being raised up by God in the most extraordinary circumstances. Because in these evil times, in the evil times that Simeon lives in, the kings were despots. They, they were wicked. They, they, were, they were corrupt to the core. The priests were apostate. And it turned religion into their own private way to make money. And the prophets had been silent for 400 years. So it was in the time of the deepest darkness that God raised up lay people just like you. That's who I want to talk about now is you. Because I want to turn this entire story on you. Because I think it was meant and written for you. Brothers and sisters, the times are evil. Now I realize virtually every preacher that has ever stood before a congregation has told that congregation, oh, the times are evil. There's never been a more wicked time than the one we live in. Well, I'm hard-pressed, brothers and sisters, and I am a student of history, but I am hard-pressed to find an age where... There is more evil about than exists in this world right now. Give you an example. We're revolted, aren't we? When we read the story about Herod. Can you imagine? What kind of an evil man, beast was he? That just in order to maintain his place on the throne, he would send his, his, his captains, his soldiers into Bethlehem to run their swords through the bodies of innocent babies so that he could preserve his power. What a horrific thing that is. Probably as many as a few dozen would be killed that way. And yet we turn our heads, brothers and sisters, every year when the statistics come out. Oh, we don't use swords to kill these babies, but we do use sharp objects. In this country alone, last year, something in excess of 800,000 innocent babies were run through with a sharp instrument to take their lives. I can't confirm these statistics, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 42.6 million babies were aborted in the world last year. 42.6 million. If that is true... And if that is a correct statistic, that means that abortion has finally become the number one cause of death on the planet. And yet people who support abortion or vote abortionist into office, oh, they get so upset. I cannot believe that God would allow the the Canaanite conquest and send his people in there to destroy men, women, and children. And all the while they ignore their own abject evil depravity because that's all it is. It's an abomination before God. And there is no way that he can possibly turn his head and allow a culture to kill 42 million innocent babies every year. It will be judgment. 
But that pales next to the religious situation that exists in the darkness of this world today. Cults are rampant. False religions are everywhere. Growing larger and faster than Christianity. Even within the Christian Excuse me, within the Christian church, we have the Sadducees over here, the liberals who have demystified, despiritualized, desupernaturalized God, and it's nothing more than a set of standards. And then over here, we have another group who has manufacturing the, the spirit, running around, barking like dogs, rolling on the floors, lying on graves to absorb righteousness. And they call that a worship service. And ha- most of the churches in this country have recreated a worship service to attract pagans rather than glorify God. Desperate situation in this world. You add to that the abject immorality of our country, the adultery, the fornication, the fact that homosexuality is now accepted as a norm, same-sex marriage is accepted as a norm, and I am considered to be giving you hate speech this morning to even talk out against it and say that God's law says that it has no place either in culture or in the Christian church, and we have even thrown gender back in his face. And said, we will create our own genders. Yeah, brothers and sisters, the times are evil. And when times are evil, what the world needs is saints. What the world needs is saints like Simeon. Saints who are extraordinary, righteous, devout, faithful, and spirit-filled. Brothers and sisters, what the world needs now are extraordinary saints. Not the run of the mill, not the weak, not the impotent. Not the kind of nominal Christianity that is out there today. No, we need saints that deserve a behold before their name and an explanation mark after it. We need saints that you can point to and say, look at this, have you ever seen anyone like that in your entire life? Standing in the midst of this evil, but standing up against the evil, refusing rebelling against the culture that would strike them down. Those are the kinds of saints we need. Pillars that are going to hold up the foundation of the church. We need islands in the middle of the torrent. We need oak trees with roots that go so deep into the river of life that no storm could possibly tear them down. We need lights in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, those are the kinds of Christians that we need. We have all the watered-down, nominal, carnal, compromised Christians that we need. We need Christians who are extraordinary. So this morning, New Hope Community Church, I am calling you to extraordinary sainthood. Extraordinary discipleship. What the world needs now is righteous men and women. We need men and women who are not afraid to be righteous in a wicked culture. Now, I want to remind you, what's the very foundation of righteousness? Where does it come from? From faith. Don't go out and try to be righteous. Don't try to improve your righteousness. If you feel you're not being the kind of righteous individual that you need to be, then get on your knees and pray to God for that righteousness because he will give it to you. Righteousness comes from faith. Pray to him for faith. Pray to him to believe more than you do now. God loves it when you pray for faith. 
He loves to give you faith. Because you see, faith, the more faith you have, the more you love God. The more you love God, the more you desire to please Him. The more you desire to please Him, the more you want to keep His commandments. And the more you keep His commandments, the more righteous you are. So, brothers and sisters, it all starts with faith. We need to go back and learn the fundamentals of what it means to be a Christian. Belief in God, in His promises, in His prophecies, in His Son, and what He says. You, as a saint in this New Testament world, are capable of being. I am so sick of looking around me at churches that promote carnal Christianity. Weak, impotent, compromised Christians. Ones who are falling, changing the morals of the, of the church to the morals of a fallen and wicked culture. Don't you realize something? Morals are a reflection of ethics. The world that we live in has no ethics, so therefore we have no morals except what the mob says is moral at that time. The Bible has the greatest ethical system ever created. It is God's ethical system. Our morality in the church and out of the church must be formed according to the ethical system of God. What we need, brothers and sisters, are saints who aren't afraid to be righteous and to stand up and let that righteousness shine into the darkness of this world. So I'm calling you this morning, brothers and sisters, New Hope Community Church, to be righteous saints. I'm also calling you to be devout saints. Once again, I'll remind you what that word means. Devout means to have a healthy fear of God, to honor Him, to have a reverence about Him, to not be arrogant, slap-happy, to come and worship in a, in a self-serving type of way. But to understand that true devoutness is something that comes from a heart that is deeply in love with God. A heart that fears Him. And, and, and you see, this is something that the world gets wrong. They say, we don't want to fear God. He's loving and happy and good and kind. And yes, He is. But He is also perfectly holy and transcendent and wrathful at your sin. And He is the one who can send body and soul to hell. And the more you know that, the more you recognize who God is, and the more you honor Him for that, the greater you understand His mercy, His love, His compassion, and His goodness in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. So therefore, the very foundation of Christianity is devoutness. And I, for one, am sick to death of watching the Churches around me make a circus show out of what they call worship services to gear them towards pagans rather than towards the true worship of God. To have this arrogant, me-focused, this, this fulfilling of my own felt needs and calling it worship. Now, what we need, brothers and sisters, are worshipers. That's what the angels came and showed the, the shepherds. Remember that? This is what we do in heaven. We worship. We honor. We adore. 
We bend the knee. We subserviate ourselves. We fall on our faces before the all-powerful, almighty God. And we adore Him. If there's one thing that the world needs now, it is worshipers, true worshipers who will worship God in spirit and truth. So I call you out this morning to be worshiping saints. To be saints that understand what it means to be devout. What the world needs now are saints who are faithfully waiting on the consolation of Israel. Now, it's slightly different than the way that Simeon did because Simeon was waiting for the first advent of Jesus Christ. But what we need, brothers and sisters, are saints who are faithfully waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that means that the whole focus is, is of our eschatology is not trying to figure out what Scripture has already told us not to figure out, which was when Jesus is going to come back and looking at all the signs. It, it, it's an idle pastime. What the eschatology of the New Testament calls you as a saint to do is to be ready for when he comes. To be doing something that you'd be proud of and that your Lord will be proud of when he comes back. Because I tell you, it is going to be a flash. It is going to be a blink as lightning shines from one end of the sky to the other. That is how quickly this world and your life and your future will come to an end. And this world will burn up in fire and ashes and you will face the white hot throne of judgment of God. The question of the eschatologist is will you be ready? Brothers and sisters, we need saints who will be ready. We need saints who are understanding of this, who are willing to, to be prepared to, to not ask when, but to ask, what will I be doing when he comes? Finally, brothers and sisters, we need saints who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What he means is don't be full of this world. Be full of the Spirit of God. Now, let me tell you something. There's, a, there's something about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can turn on and turn off. You can't just simply say, hey, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit today. You can't run around, bark like dogs, lay on graves to absorb holiness and say, hey, I'm full of the Holy Spirit today. You can't manufacture. It's not an emotion. It's not a sentimentality. The Holy Spirit is given by God. It is a gift. Whether it is for salvation or sanctification, the Holy Spirit is a gift of God. But let me tell you what happens. When Jesus Christ redeems you, when he takes the old... Heart out. The Holy Spirit takes that heart out and puts a new heart in. A heart that is fireproofed with the law of God written on the inside of it and a perfect receptacle for the Holy Spirit to live in. And so he moves in and makes his abode with you. But that redeemed soul where the light of God is in there. And I'm not talking about some new agey thing about having a spark of the divine. I'm talking about in the spiritual nature, the Holy Spirit of God lives in the souls of saints. But that soul is still in a body that is prone to sin. And your enemy knows that. And so that enemy... Is going to spend the rest of your life trying to cover up that light. You see, Jesus came to redeem us, but he left us in the sewer. And, and, and our enemy 
will spend every day, all day, covering you with the muck and filth of that sewer in an effort to hide your light, to keep the Holy Spirit from showing to those who are around you. And there's a desperate need that we have in the world today that people who are spirit-filled continue the fight. And it is a fight, brothers and sisters, from start to finish, for you to continue to cleanse off all of the muck and the filth that the enemy throws on you. Jesus put it this way. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? Throw it out to be trampled underfoot. That's what the devil tries to do to you. Is to turn your salt into something that's not salty. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. But he said, if you put the light under a basket, what good is it? We're to be a city shining on a hill. We're to have that light shining. And if you allow the devil to throw the basket over you in the form of the filth and the temptations of this world, your light will not shine in the darkness. Brothers and sisters, we don't need any more incognito Christians who got the world is full of them. What we need is fearless Christians. Because will the enemy attack you once you start bucking him? Yeah, most probably. Will he attack your family? Will he attack your home? Will he attack your friends? Will he attack your church? Yeah. He'll do everything that he can do and he doesn't play fair and he doesn't play nice. He plays dirty. But brothers and sisters, we don't need any more Christians that are going to fold to him and run from him and hide under the rock from him. What we need are Christians who are warriors. That's what the angels showed us. They sent the army here to show us what kind of a fight we're going to have. Brothers and sisters, what the world needs now are warrior saints. So I'm calling upon you this morning, New Hope Community Church, to be saints. Filled with the Holy Spirit and willing to shine that Holy Spirit into the darkness that is around you. And that is the reason that I only wanted to cover one verse this morning. Because that is the portrait of a saint. Of an Old Testament saint or a New Testament saint. Extraordinary. Righteous. Devoted, sorry, faithful, filled with the Spirit. It is my prayer and my desire and my purpose this morning that not only would this be a portrait of an old man who lived 2,000 years ago, but that it will be a portrait of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would indeed burn these words into our heart. Burn what it means to be a saint because that's what you've called us to be. You have consecrated us and set us aside. Not for easy times. Not for times when saints are going to be put up on pedestals. But we're going to be demeaned and derided if not persecuted. These are the kinds of times that you have called us to. May we not run from them, Lord. May we. Stand firm. May we be the kinds of saints that are needed in the most evil of times. Maybe we be your saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.